0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Geoversive's Earth Intelligence Podcast. It's good to have you with us, and thank you very much for joining us for the second part of our conversation with Dr. Michael Mann. Joe Robertson is here, and he is going to be leading this discussion because it has to do
1: with some very critical issues regarding carbon and its costs. Joe? Thank you, Don. Dr. Mann, We talked last time about the amount of damage and destabilization that can come from climate change and the fact that this is now visible. People see it in their everyday lives. People are having terrible experiences of extreme impacts. And the situation is so dire that far from this being a future scenario we're talking about, it raises the question, if the data is showing us that this is a consequence of certain activities. And we know this is happening in the world. We can see it happening. Could we begin networking scientific data to financial data and other kinds of decision-making information to make sure that we're making decisions grounded in reality, to make sure that when we when we value something, we actually know whether it's good or
2: bad when we produce carbon pollution, um, we're doing real damage uh, because climate change is impacting agriculture, human health, um, and our economy writ large. And it's necessary to take that damage into account when the government uh, assesses the, you know, the merit of any particular uh, policy. Uh, So, they are likely to substantially increase that estimate of the social cost of carbon so that uh, the government's decision-making will be premised on the fact that carbon pollution is doing all this damage and we need to make sure that we favor actions that minimize carbon pollution uh, and that we don't continue to promote and reward actions that continue to put carbon pollution into the atmosphere and and do that damage so the government the federal government can can do that through its own policy uh, apparatus but executive actions uh, alone aren't going to be enough to to tackle this problem because we need a market signal we need a price signal that uh, tells our economy how much damage is being done by carbon pollution, we need that signal to exist in our uh, larger economy. And so we need legislation. We need climate legislation that will use market mechanisms like carbon pricing, or provide subsidies, explicit subsidies for renewable energy. We need legislation that will also ensure that we um, reward, again, uh, economic uh, activity that minimizes carbon pollution, and we we don't reward uh, economic activity that produces carbon pollution. So what I'm hopeful of is that we will see uh, one or more climate bills uh, pass, Congress within the next couple of years, if by the slimmest of margins, it might end up being done through the so-called process of reconciliation with 50 Democratic votes and a tie-breaking vote by a Democratic vice president. But I think we will see some sort of climate legislation that includes carbon pricing and subsidies for renewable energy um, that will complement the actions that the federal government is taking right now under the leadership of the Biden administration.
0: One of the things that you point out in your book is that you're saying that there is some movement There is some reason for optimism that Republicans, conservatives are moving a little bit, and perhaps it's because they feel that it is the uh, only way they can survive, because as you write, denial is a liability, and they're recognizing that, and that there is a group of Republicans ready to go. Do you think that they will have a multiplication effect on the rest of the GOP?
2: Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. Of course, we're in a fraught political environment now um, in the wake of the Trump presidency, which has really led to, um, you know, more partisan uh, division than I think we've seen in a long time in this country, to the point where, in fact, this um, COVID relief bill um, was only passed with Democratic votes. Not one Republican in the Senate or House of Representatives voted for um, a COVID relief bill that was overwhelmingly popular with the American people at 70% support, 60% support among Republicans, and yet it didn't get a single Republican vote. And that speaks to the disconnect right now, uh, even between where sort of rank and file um, Republicans are and where their leadership is right now, a leadership that uh, is still to some extent coddling uh, Donald Trump and and, and Trump's uh, supporters. So um, I don't, know exactly how that's going to play out. I don't know if there are Republicans who will be willing to cross the aisle and join with Democrats. I would hope so. What I would like to see, I can tell you, is a climate bill or a set of climate bills that votes that, that passes not through reconciliation um, uh, that, uh, in fact, isn't even subject uh, to a filibuster because it gets more than 60 votes in the Senate that would require, obviously, you know, a, a dozen, the better part of a dozen Republicans um, crossing the aisle and joining with Democrats. Um, I do think that younger Republicans in particular uh, recognize that um, climate change um, is, you know, is an issue that is of great importance uh, to, to, to younger folks, regardless of their party affiliation. Um, the polling suggests that, uh, you know, somewhere like 65 percent of Republicans below the age of 40 um, support. Uh, climate action. And so I'm hoping that we will see, you know, a dozen or so Republicans join with Democrats and we'll get a truly bipartisan uh, bill or set of climate bills that will reflect some sort of compromise. You know, I don't think in the current political atmosphere we're going to see something like the Green New Deal pass Congress, very, uh, you know, the, the sort of um, wide-ranging uh, climate legislation that's uh, laden with uh, social programs. I don't think something like that, a package like that can can pass a closely divided uh, Senate. But I do think that compromise climate legislation, which might include some mechanisms that moderate Republicans like, um, which includes, for example, market um, you know measures like uh, carbon pricing. Uh, I, I think we might see something like that uh, pass Congress. I think there's a good chance of that, and that will obviously complement the, um, the the substantial action that's already being taken. By the Biden administration. So for those reasons, I'm I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to see some meaningful uh, action here in the United States. And moreover, that the renewed leadership by the United States is sort of now setting the stage for uh, global engagement as we go into the the next uh, conference of the parties, COP26 uh, later this year in Glasgow.
0: You talk a lot about doomism. And it's interesting to me because doomism is petrifying. And I, I know that that will resonate with you as a, uh, as a geologist. Right. <laughs> it just turns you into rocks. Uh, it, it's not something that makes you run away. It just freezes you in position. Doomism is not just something that comes from, quote, the other side. Sometimes doomism is coming from our friends. It's coming from people who believe that climate change is happening. They believe the science. They understand. They know the science is true. But they think it's too late for anybody to do anything. Doomism can halt all the progress if it takes over.
2: Yeah, and I think that you used the operat, uh, operative word when you said petrifying, because of course it's the same petra, the the same Latin root as petrol, um, oil. <laughs> um, and in fact, um, doomism does align with the agenda of the oil industry and the fossil fuel industry, because it does potentially lead us down that path of inaction. As you allude to, um, the, the irony of the, of, of, of doomism is that it ends up weaponizing, in a sense, uh, folks who would be most likely to be on the front lines demanding uh, action on climate, environmental progressives um, who are, you know, very supportive of um, action, environmental action, but have been led to think now that it's sort of um, beyond the point of no return. That uh, there's nothing we can do now to uh, to, to prevent uh, catastrophic climate change, uh, and that. You know, potentially leads them down uh, this path of disengagement. And the forces of inaction, the inactivists, the fossil fuel interests, and those doing their bidding, they don't care about the path you take. They just care about the destination. They want you disengaged. And they don't care whether you're disengaged because you deny the science of climate change, or you're disengaged because you become convinced that it's simply too late to do anything. And so I think it's important to to recognize that there are a lot of Folks of of goodwill, of good intentions, they're, they're they're good people whose heart is in the right place, but they've been led astray by some bad actors that are promoting, uh, I think, somewhat cynically, this idea that it's too late to do anything. And I'll just give one example, um, because it, it just some people are skeptical that this is really true, that it really is true that the forces of inaction are promoting doom and gloom. It it, it sounds. Uh, almost um, implausible, if not, uh, you know, or even inconceivable that they would be doing that. And yet there was an op-ed in the Washington Post a few weeks ago by former Indiana Governor uh, Mitch Daniels, um, a conservative. In the past, he has denied uh, the science of climate change, sort of a climate change denier. But he wrote an op-ed in which he said that if we Trust the climate models um, that climate scientists are using. That those models tell us it's too late to to stop anyways. It's too late to stop the warming anyways. That's completely false. But it was a very interesting example of an inactivist whose interests in the past have been aligned with the fossil fuel industry, actually using doomism to suppress. Enthusiasm and engagement, um, presumably on the part of progressives, because look, the fossil fuel industry has done a really good job marshalling political conservatives for their cause what an amazing win for them if they can, in addition, weaponize some on the environmental left for their agenda. And uh, unfortunately, that is happening to some extent. So when we see people who sort of fall into that climate despair, and and often it's based on false narratives, Uh, many of the doomest narratives that we encounter, in fact, I would say just about all of them are typically premised on a distortion of the science that's actually as bad as the distortions of the science on the other side by climate change deniers. For example, the widespread claim that we have already unleashed massive amounts of Arctic methane that are going to lead to runaway warming, the extinction of all life on the planet within 10 years. There are, in fact, protagonists who uh, have tried to make that case, who who actually make that argument. And, and there are a lot of followers. Some of these um, sort of doomsayers have really been very effective in marshalling a very large audience for their cause. Um, that audience is an audience of uh, victims. Um, these aren't bad people. These are people of goodwill, good intentions, good-hearted people who have been led astray by some false prophets who have misrepresented the science to convince them that it's too late to do anything. The science says just the opposite. Uh, there is still time, and there is agency. As I said before, um, there is a direct and immediate impact on the warming of the planet of our efforts to reduce carbon emissions. The science very clearly indicates that. And it very clearly indicates that there is still time to uh, prevent catastrophic warming of the planet more than a degree and a half Celsius, three degree Fahrenheit warming of the planet if we take dramatic action now.
1: Don and I have a a good friend, David Thorson, who who was part of a couple of expeditions that sailed through uh, the Northwest Passage. And in describing the experience of being on a small boat in a hostile, natural, wild place. You know, everyone has a vital role to play. And he said, despair is not allowed on this small vessel. <laughs> And that's because they. everyone on that small vessel has practical things they have to do to keep everyone else alive and to keep the ship sailing. I think in some ways what we're talking about when we talk about the science that points to the need to act and the kinds of actions we can take to get to a better world, we're talking about trying to stay ship-shaped, trying to stay ahead of the threats that could undermine humanity, human civilization, even the biosphere. And so these are practical points. Yeah. Do you think that putting a clear price signal in place so that the economy is now equipped by that information to evolve in the right direction, to essentially steady itself and yeah. get rid of some of these bad activities, do you think that because actually all of us are on that boat and we have the same interest, that some of the... For-profit interests that are opposing climate action in an environment where that is now the the signal yeah. that they can actually change course or figure out a different way to to live.
2: Yeah, we need here is a clear price signal, and it, you know a lot of people uh, today uh, do recognize that um, climate change is a crisis. There is this renewed awareness about uh, the existential threat that it poses uh, to us uh, and our environment um but not everybody is going to act simply because it's the right thing to do it's the environmentally conscious thing to do um we know that that's you know w- Economics, the field of economics tells us that if we want to see large scale changes in behavior, it's not enough um, just to tell people to do the right thing because it's the right thing. You need incentives. You need incentives so that even people who don't care about climate change and don't think about climate change are still making climate friendly decisions in the products that they purchase, in the way they get their energy, in the way that they travel, because there are incentives that, encourage that behavior. And those incentives can take the form of a price on carbon. And I think there is, you know, a very um, important discussion, debate that we have to have about, you know, how do we do that? Um, is it a carbon tax? Do we use a cap and trade system, um, a fee and dividend? Do we? What do we do with the revenue? Because whether uh, a carbon pricing is progressive or regressive depends uh, very much on what you do with the revenue. There is this growing belief um, actually within the progressive movement, that carbon pricing is somehow inconsistent with environmental justice because the costs will fall on on those with the least resources, Um, that it's a regressive tax, in in other words. That absolutely doesn't have to be the case. Um, And in countries like Australia, where they had a carbon tax uh, or what they called an uh, an emissions trading scheme, which was effectively a carbon tax in place for uh, more than a year until the conservative government came in and got rid of it it was actually benefiting frontline communities, low-income individuals and families, uh, because the revenue was actually returned uh, progressively to the people. And that's uh, happened in Canada as well. So there are ways to implement carbon pricing such that it is progressive, that it doesn't hurt the very frontline communities that are already most impacted, that are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And that's really important because what we need here is a transition, but we need a just transition. So, yes, I think a price on carbon um, is critical. And and how we do that, well, that's that's what we should be debating in the halls of Congress right now, right? Not whether climate change is real, uh, whether it's a crisis, but how we're going to go about solving this crisis and what particular market mechanisms we might want to use in doing that. I should say, you know, full
1: disclosure in my work with uh, citizens' climate, we advocate for fee and dividend policy, and for the very reasons that you that you shared, there have been public statements from Republicans, Democrats, independents, experts, business leaders, local and national that say putting a price on carbon, putting money in people's pockets so that they're not harmed by that policy, and moving forward that this would be a good thing. In your view, taking stock of the science, taking stock of the policy realm. Is it possible to say that if we do something like that and the economy moves forward and we get to a clean economy on schedule, on time to avoid warming above 1.5 degrees Celsius, for instance, that we will be better off? Is it possible to say that the science tells us that that kind of thing will leave us in a better situation than if we don't?
2: Yeah, I think the science, um, and the economics, uh, collectively, uh, does, uh, send that message, um, that we can both grow the economy and preserve the environment at the same time. Too often it's framed as a false choice that either we, you know, preserve the environment or we get e- economic growth. We, we, that somehow, um, we, we can't have both at the same time. And, and that's based on a fallacy. Um, the, the most, uh, I think obvious Aspect of that fallacy is the idea that we can possibly prosper um, on a on a dead planet. Because ultimately, if we go down the road of climate destruction, uh, there, there is no economy uh, on a on a lifeless planet. That's one very obvious end member, uh, an extreme example. But but more generally, the the fact is that climate change is. Costing us far more now in the damage that it's doing, Um, these unprecedented superstorms and wildfires and and heat waves. um, You know the damage that's been being done now by climate change and the way climate change is exacerbating these these extreme weather events. That cost is far greater than any nominal cost of of uh, implementing action, climate action. And so we have to get away from that fallacy that uh, we have to choose between economic growth and environmental preservation. The, the path that actually preserves the environment and preserves our, our climate is going to be the path that leads uh, to the strongest economy, because a healthier planet, all else being equal, is going to give you a healthier economy.
0: Dr. Mann, thank you very much for being with us on Earth Intelligence. And I want to say this, just as a friend, that if we are in a war, I'm ready to be recruited. <laughs> and uh, second, I believe you're the commanding general four stars well, you're too, because too you have probably more silver stars with more oak leaf clusters <laughs> than anyone that I have ever met and a bucket full of purple hearts because I know how badly you've been injured and how often people have tried to hurt you and that you continue to speak out and stand on the front lines is an inspiration to me and to everyone who believes in the science Of climate change. Thank you very much, Mike, for
2: being with us. Thank you, Don. You you are too kind. And, um, you know, it fills my heart to know that you are on the front lines there with me. It means a lot to me, my friend.
0: I will tell you this, as they say in the Marine Corps, if you ever need anyone to go to hell and back, Call me first.
2: (laughs) Well, I hope I'll see you before then. (laughs) So um, I do look forward to to seeing you to crossing paths in person one of these days soon. Good. Thank you very much, Mike. That's Dr.
0: Michael Mann and with Joseph Robertson. And this has been GeoVersives Earth Intelligence. Thank you very much for joining us.